With the rise of violent fascism across the United States, there's also a response of anti-fascists who are also willing to take up arms and diligently protect people who are the targets of fascists across the country. I'm Jessica Burbank, this is The Conversation. And today to talk about this, we have Natasha Leonard, who's a columnist with The Intercept and a professor at the New School for Social Research in New York. She wrote a book, Being Numerous Essays on Non-Fascist life. Natasha, tell us how you got into this work. Um, gosh, it's a, a well, first of all, thank you for having me, Jessica. It's really nice to be here um, digitally. Uh, so yeah, I've been looking at the um, rise of fascist constellations long before the so-called fascism debate um, arose around Trump's ascendancy. Um, relying on, uh, you know, long histories of of movement politics around anti-fascist street resistance in the United States and in Europe, um, some of which dates back to specifically what is known as like Antifa, which is quite a European constellation of of physical, combative street and occasionally armed resistance, but also the history of uh, black radical community self-defense in the United States particularly. So these are kind of histories I've I've written about for the last decade or so um, and have been paying more and more attention to the more and more, unfortunately, it seems that we need to have these kind of constellations in the streets today. And what was your exact introduction into this work? Were you someone who was participating in movement politics? What's the story there? Um, I'm a, I, you know, I'm a journalist um, and a writer. I uh, got involved in New York City in, in the Occupy movement, which definitely didn't define itself. So that was 2011. Never defined itself specifically as anti-fascist. It was far more legible and articulated as an anti-capitalist movement. Um, but I'm very much uh, in agreement with the um, writing and thinking around a kind of robust anti-capitalism that understands the risk of fascist co- constellations, fascist movements coming out of uh, you know, various forms of modernity and capitalism. So it's not like I uh, got into movement politics through what was known as anti-fascism, but I think as everyone who's being paid attention to the rise of the far right in the last 10 years, um, and the kind of leftist responses. It's not that unusual that people that were involved in Occupy Wall Street and then understanding the need for a kind of strong anti-racist response to both the carceral state, policing, prisons, politics as normal, um, and naming that as a kind of anti-fascist set of things as well. So anti-capitalism with anti-racism should lead one to uh, quite comfortably uh, taking up anti-fascist action. Right, your work is so incredibly important because we're at this interesting place in the United States where this group Antifa has kind of been slandered as uh, this extremist group that's uh, violent. But your work in covering anti-fascist action in the United States tells a bit of a different story that they're trying to prevent fascist violence. Can you tell us more about that? So sure, and I would you know want to make the clarification that there is no Antifa group, right? It's uh, it's a tactic. Um, so uh, a lot of I would say there's a lot of anti-fascist action that doesn't use the the label or the umbrella term of Antifa. Um, that's a specific set of 
uh, openly militant, uh, you know, willing to take on Nazis and different types of fascism, it, white supremacists in the street under the broad label Antifa. But I would say, you know, if you think about the sort of uh, radical activism around the uprisings of 2020 or the uprisings in Ferguson against, you know, the violence of policing, I would call that anti-fascist, even if it was certainly not anything that would self-describe as Antifa. But I think obviously at that same time and, and even before that and ever more so, Antifa has become a really convenient boogeyman for uh, Republicans particularly, but also, you know, centrist and mainstream Democrats to talk about uh, that, you know, old canard of well, of course, we've got a major problem of far right white supremacist extremism, violent armed extremism, um, murderous deadly extremism. So there seems to be this compulsion both in Congress and in throughout the mainstream media to be like, well, there must be the left wing equivalent. Who is that? It's Antifa. Um, and this two sidesism has played out very much by calling into being this this violent thread threat of antifa or anti-fascism more generally which is of course absurd but um i think specifically um the way i try to explain uh these kind of tensions and explain why that sort of two sidesism is is so inappropriate um and so misplaced and actually so dangerous is because even if you're talking about anti-fascist groups that that do take up arms or would be willing to, you know, physically confront far-right groups in the street, or uh, as I've written about recently, the sort of groups that have been willing to arm themselves to pro provide security for queer events or drag brunches that are being really, really violently and aggressively threatened and attacked by far-right groups. These are not escalatory forces, they are de-escalatory. So it's with the understanding that the far right has made clear that they have eliminationist desires, that they want to do away with trans communities, that they will do everything they can to make trans lives unlivable in this moment um, with arms, with threats, uh, with, you know, extra legal and now legalized violence in a lot of states. So groups saying uh, we too will will stand by just to, to protect these communities, to protect their own communities in the long history of radical community defense does not mean that like people coming in defensive modes to these spaces with guns are escalating a violence that really eliminationist violence can't be escalated, right? It's total in its desires. Um, so I think there's a, that's the danger of the two sidesism that we see in a lot of mainstream media. Right, absolutely. When we think about things like the, the Club Q shooting or this planned attack on a drag brunch in Texas, these are commonplace now in the United States. These attempts uh, to disrupt uh, violently so. These drag events, and uh, it's coming from the perspective of not wanting these people to live their life as they see fit. It's infringing upon their freedoms and their basic human rights uh, to say that we don't want you to exist and we're going to disrupt this. 
And so I really appreciate you pointing out this uh, false narrative of the two sidesism of uh, anti-fascist action. Can you say more about things escalating in the United States with uh, fascists taking more action uh, and what we can expect to see in the future and what trends you're noticing? So I would say it's part of a long, you know, since the birth of this nation, uh, if not uh, in the DNA of this very nation state, um, part of this consistent backlash of uh, white supremacist claims to white standing that has always been historically violent from you know the elimination of indigenous people from uh, you know the incredible violent backlash after post reconstruction uh, any to, uh, to the very very kind of far right Christian nationalist turns after the civil rights movement last century I think we're seeing uh, another uh, iteration of that. So I don't think it's new, but I think it's a very violent latest iteration of white supremacist backlash that will take a violent turn both within the law. So we've seen these really awful laws passed in state after state, hundreds and hundreds of bills passing in the last two years at pace through state houses, through Republican state houses to basically illegalize and criminalize trans life. Uh, let alone uh, reproductive freedoms for pregnant people um, and voting rights for people of color. It all comes together, and I think it would uh, we, you know, do ourselves and liberation struggles in general no favors if we try and separate them. Um, so I think at the same time, and this has also happened throughout history, you have these uh, legalized forms of. Uh, persecution uh, being formalized, it comes together with militia violence. So it's violent legal forces and then illegal violence working together. Um, and I think we've just seen that escalate in the last two years, particularly with trans children and trans communities being uh, the, the most scapegoated, I would say, in at least that discourse, um, because it's so easy to point to this notion of the imperiled child to activate right wing forces. Right, I mean, I would say in many ways in the United States, so many people are desensitized to the structures that we have in place that many would label as fascist. What do you think it takes for people? I know as a journalist, sometimes you'll get messages like, you know, the way you've put this really made sense to me and it made me get it. Uh, to really get people to call a spade a spade and say that we're living in a country uh, that is fascist, the way the police uh, handle themselves in many occasions and the structures that we have of white supremacy. How do we get that message across? Um, I mean, it's it's tricky when you have institutions like you know the the trusted paper of record, the New York Times, mm -hmm. very much playing into a sort of two sidesism, like you know, but the Proud Boys say this, and then the trans people whose lives they're threatening say this. Both have good points. You know, we, we it's a difficult place to to intervene in. But I would say uh, anyone, it's it sounds like such a banal point, but read the history. And I would say it's not unique to the United States. I think we're seeing these kind of constellations and assemblages of militant fascism aligned with a centralized politics of far right parties gaining power throughout Europe as well and beyond. So I don't think it's exceptional to America, but I think if you need to look at the history of American white backlash, uh, it can inform uh, an, at least an understanding of why a robust anti-fascist response is necessary. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your perspective and everything you've shared. If people want to read more of your work and follow your work, where should they find you? Um, they could either find me at Natasha Leonard on Twitter and my column is at The Intercept. So it's theintercept.com.
Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Natasha. Thanks, Jessica. I say it quite frequently, it feels like many people don't know how to act anymore. But at the end of the day, our society is sick for many different reasons. And there's a lack of healthcare, especially mental healthcare in the United States. Today to talk about this, we have Haven Arecchio Egresits, right? Egresits? Yes. I wanna make sure we get this correctly so people can find you afterwards. This is the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. No problem, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about a recent story you covered to start about the killing of transgender women. Most of uh, you know the killers being young men who had been intimate with transgender women. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned from covering this? Absolutely. So I'd love to start by telling you about the project as a whole. Um, it was yeah. a mass undertaking with reporters across Insider, the investigations team, and the News Enterprise team. And so we um, dug up, um, we put together a list of uh, homicides in the United States between 2017 and 2021, where the victims were trans, um, either trans or non-binary. And from there, we just sort of dug in, looking into um, police records, into the investigations, and one wanted to figure out um, you know, uh, what happened in each of these cases. Um, and we really did learn a lot. Um, my part of this series um, was on transphobic killings. And so that covered um, cases of trans panic, you know, traditional trans panic sort of, um, as we imagine classic hate crimes, um, somebody um, has a sexual encounter with um, a woman, they learn that they're trans and they, they end up um, instead of walking away, killing um, their their victim. Um, but it also covered um, more cases actually than this where cases of repetitive hookups, um, the killers long knew the victim was trans, they knew their identity and it it wasn't that they hated their victim over this. It was really a fear of discovery. Um, they grew up in communities that were um, largely put, put a lot of pressure on being masculine and worried about um, uh, what, uh, whether hooking up with a, a trans woman made them gay. And if if somebody found out, they worried what that, that meant. So um, this led to really fatal violence, brutal, brutal um, violence. Um, and and uh, so altogether, we looked at 175 cases through that time, and uh, 17 cases um, that we were able to identify involved some sort of transphobia, and uh, we called it cultural transphobia. And when you say cultural transphobia, that means they're they're learning this through the media or through the home. Yes, we called it cultural transphobia because like I said before, it wasn't just cases of um, strangers in the street saw someone um, who was trans, they got so angry about it that they they freaked out and, and killed the person. But it was, um, there were instances of self-hate and um, the, the rise in violence um, throughout that period, we, we were tracking like an increase in these homicides was parallel to sort of the national conversation about trans lives. So um, in that five year period, uh, there were a lot of national conversations about bathroom bills and um, um, gender affirming health care. And so um, 
I also listened to quite a few jail calls, conversations with the killers and their family members. And um, in those calls, you you do hear a lot of pressure around what masculinity means and um, being strong and how to behave in, in um, jail. So um, yes, it's, it's more of a cultural issue than just um, you know within that household. And throughout all of your work here, were there any obvious intervention points where you think, you know, some people could have learned more about what gender means in our society and where the notion of gender comes from as a concept? Were there any points where you said, oh, if this person, you know, sought some help in, in therapy and validation about their own identity and their own sense of masculinity and sexuality, were there any points where you said, you know, these are people who could have been helped? Well, I mean, my main story that I sort of weaved among um, many other killings was uh, the, the killer's name was David Bogdanov. It was a 17-year-old victim in Vancouver, Washington. And um, in that case, the um, David's ex-girlfriend testified about um, how many instances that he used the phrase, you know, disgusting or, um, or used um, Russian anti-gay slurs. And I feel like, you know, this was a history of sort of anti-trans rhetoric, and maybe if someone did intervene and um, question, um, uh, you know, why this was part of his his circle, m- maybe it would have prevented. I mean, who knows what would have prevented it? But um, he did testify at trial that, uh, in his own defense, that um, he came from um, a family where um, being intimate with a trans woman would, you know, he would end up being disowned. Interesting. It's interesting to see where the roots of these kinds of sentiments come from that lead ultimately to violent action. Uh, A lot of your work pertains to extremely uh, intense subjects from, you know, the R. Kelly situation to uh, some cults out of Hollywood to talking about uh, US mental health failures that end up leading to police shootings. Can you say more about the common thread of all of your work being mental health in the United States? Yes, I mean, I think um, the lack of um, mental health access is especially important, like you mentioned, in um, police killings. Um, so um, I think uh, it's it's just horrifying to see um, so many of the cases where there is in, there are families um, trying to get help for usually um, just over adulthood. So you know, 19, 20 year old male who is having some sort of um, break. And um, the parents, um, this this is now an adult, so they have no say over whether this person can be um, get any treatment. It's up to them, and um, there's there's really no way to get them help beyond a 911 call. Whether it's a case like you know these trans killings, where a 911 call is called too late, or um, whether that person is in crisis and they um, you know need uh, need intervention beforehand to get into a treatment center. So um, yeah, there there's definitely a lack of um, mental health access in the U.S. Going back uh, to this this massive story of transgender killings, I would say that. This is a a mental health issue as well, right? For someone to feel this way, especially towards someone that they've been intimate with. And a lot of the lawyers you reported argued that their client feared for their own life. Uh, A lot of them you mentioned were afraid uh, to tell their families because they would be disowned. But a lot of them were literally afraid for their life. Can you speak to that a little bit? 
Yeah, so um, that goes back to the the classic trans panic defense. Um, in years past, you would uh, it, it was more understood by juries um, when somebody, um, a defendant would say, listen, I didn't know they were trans. I found out they were trans and I just freaked out. I couldn't control myself and I killed them in the moment. And so that classic trans panic defense, I've been told is um, juries don't really buy it anymore. They still think that that's unacceptable because the world has moved on, right? But now the, the rhetoric is still able to sort of work its way into the courtroom through um, self-defense. Um, so not only were they freaked out, but um, you know there was an altercation. There was there was conflict because uh, the person who found out they were trans um, did freak out and um, maybe even verbally. And then, um, in usually in my the cases I mentioned in my story, it was it was not after the initial police interview that this came out, but it was later in the courtroom through their lawyers, and they said, oh, they spotted a knife or they spotted a gun, and that's um, pretty common in cases of self defense. Um, that also kind of fall across that line of a trans panic defense. And this trans panic defense is uh, a common proper legal defense, right? And uh, there's legislation that's been passed to prevent the usage of this defense. Do I have that right? Yes, it is. So um, across the country, more states are putting formal uh, formal bans on the trans panic defense. And like I said, it, they're not successful when you use them in this classic way. Um, and, and so they are more mixed into self-defense. And when that is the case, it's hard to distinguish and and even even if an abandon ban is in place, it's it can be really tricky to kind of prevent that kind of language. Um, but yeah, so Nikki Kunhausen, um, her family after she was uh, murdered, um, stopped at nothing to kind of get Washington State to ban the trans panic defense. And um, there were all there was already movement across the country in this way. But um, after Washington banned it, uh, there were um, it really picked up, and other states started moving it along as well. That's super interesting. When you were reporting on this, did you notice anyone had a sense of the difference between, you know, sex assigned at birth, female and male versus the notion of gender? Did anyone have any sort of sense of a separation there? In, in what way? I mean, um, I talked to family, I talked to police, I talked to good right. friends and Basically, um, as for good friends and close family um, who accepted the victims, um, however they preferred to be, um, you know, preferred to identify, that's how they were identified. Um, when it came into the courtrooms and when it came into um, the investigation, I think there was a little confusion. Right, and typically, you know, the assailant was confused about these concepts. Is that right? Not always. I mean, interesting. Sometimes not sometimes the assailant knew exactly what the the situation was, and uh, they had no problem with it when they were being intimate on you know repeated incident um, incidents. Um, they were. It wasn't until their partners, uh, their, their trans partners, said, you know, I'd really like our relationship to be public, or um, they they started to fear that their parents would find out, and that's when this kind of overwhelming pressure of toxic masculinity turned fatal. That's absolutely so fascinating. Uh, just that some people had a sense of this and understood this while being intimate. It makes me afraid for my friends who are transgender. Can you say a little bit more about where people can find your work? I know this you do reporting with Insider and that's where uh, this, this article came out uh, or this story he kept seeing her face. But where else can people follow your work? 
Uh, they can follow me on Twitter. Um, they can follow me on Instagram. But um, yeah, the the main series um, and it's displayed really beautifully with great graphics and data sets. Um, it's called Deaths in the Family, and uh, that's on the Insider main page. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your work on this. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having me on.